Hi everyone, I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel and this is One on One, Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Ravonit Yardena Kop Yosef Bodenheimer is currently a legal advisor in the Jewish Law Department of the Ministry of Justice and specializes in bioethics and assisted reproductive technologies as well as personal status law. She serves as a fertility advisor and teaches Torah in various contexts in Israel and throughout the world, including the Beit Midrash Lit Chachut. For over 20 years, she worked at Matan, initiating and directing the Advanced Talmudic Institute, instituted and led the first Daf Yomi for Women by Women over 16 years ago, the Ethiopian Leadership Program, the MA Program in Talmud, the Teachers Training Program, and the Research Fellows. Yardena, it is a pleasure to be sitting here with you today. Thanks, Yosefa. It's a pleasure to be sitting here. I really want to hear, and I think everyone would love to hear, how you started off on this path. Where did all of these wonderful array of, of things that you're involved in today in the Torah world, uh, how did that start? And you could start as, as far back as you'd like. Um, we'd really love to hear how that all began. Thank you. Um, well, I grew up in Chicago. And I grew up to uh, both an activist and a very intellectual family. Um, so I was very involved on the one hand with myriad youth movements. And I also got a great Jewish education, which sounds strange because in Chutzlarts it doesn't always yeah, happen. That's, that's a big gift. It is a big gift. I was at <laughs> Schechter and we learned everything in Limudei Kodesh, Ivrit Ivrit, And then at Ida Crown Jewish Academy, where two teachers had a very big influence on me, both Dr. Esther Schkop, um, who leads the Teachers Training Institute in Chicago now, and also Rabbi Marshall Kaplan, who was my math teacher. Um, they had a great influence on my life and on my love of learning in general. And then um, when I was just a little bit older, when I was still in high school, I met Rabbi Aryeh Kaplan through NCSY, and he had a formative influence on me. Um, I even wrote an article on him. Um, but what was he? What was he in NCSY at that point? He was one of the advisors, rabbanim that came and taught um, at national conference, and I had a very big schut to meet him. But um, even before that, I had some crazy, freaky love for Gemara that I can't explain. Um, and I asked one of the rabbeim, actually the European rabbeim in the high in, in my high school, if he would be willing to teach me Gemara, and he did so during breakfast time. Um, wow. Every day. No questions asked. He just saw a student who wanted to learn and taught me. And I um, I started teaching actually when I was very young. When I was asked to teach Hebrew school, I was 13. And I started teaching in a Hebrew school for special needs children. Um, and also in high school. The high school asked me to teach. Um, it was very, I don't know. These things have just always been part of me as long as I can remember. And I never had people who said no. I always had people who opened the door and said yes. You mentioned earlier that you are from an activist family. Can you explain what that means? I'll try. I um, I grew up in a family where we went to every Jewish demonstration and cause that existed and, um, and general causes that were um, on behalf of justice. I remember myself at age two, downtown Chicago, chanting, boo, boo, pompadour. Um, but my parents served on the school board and on the board of the shul, and I went to every youth movement in Chicago. And I think that really influenced me that um, to be like sort of a fighter on behalf of justice or something like that. Um, and also to combine what I do in the intellectual sphere and in the Torah sphere with what's happening in the real world. That they're supposed to 
influence each other. And um, I guess that's part of my uh, biography. Wow. That's a that's a real winning combination. It's it's often really hard to bridge those two. So that's a real gift that you received early on. So you mentioned some of your role models that you had. And uh, as life continued, are those really two of the role models that continued to illuminate the way for you? Or there, there, or are there others along the way? Oh, I had other role models along the way. I'd say that um, for me were very, very important. Indeed, Rabbi Kaplan really had a formative influence on me. And as I said earlier, I wrote an article about him. And I've even tried recently to rekindle Yortzite events in his memory on Yudalit Shvat. Um, but really, um, from him, I took a, a deep openness and curiosity, humility um, that he had when he, he was so brilliant, yet he related to each student in a very open way, and a great creativity, um, and also a search for depth that was combined with a very practical uh, approach. I think... Um, in the female sphere, I was very much influenced by Nechama Leibowitz, who I had the schut to learn with. Her questioning, her precision, um, her seeking Torah meaning, not just to understand the Radzak uh, or Lutzato, but to understand how that has meaning for our lives. And also, uh, my teacher at Matan, Hannah Belinson Zichonadi Vracha, had a very big influence on me. She was brilliant and so dedicated to learning. And she had cr- tremendous curiosity for everything in the world um, and was able to combine them, bring the, the various areas together. I was also very close when I was in Orot, when I was a teenager, to Edith Itzkovitz, who like comes from a very different world. But the same thing, her bren, her fierce love of learning and dedication to it, I think had a very big influence on me. Um, uh, the other kind, I think the influences on me were also from um, the Torah personality of Rabbanit Kapach, who I Zoha to be very close to. Somebody told me once that you could give your wedding dress um, to her gmach, and I did, and I met her, and I continued a relationship with her that lasted over 30 years. And I would sit and have oh. tea with her and learn from her model of chesed, how to evaluate a situation, when to give, when to hold back. And I think that my neighbor, that my neighbors, the Zingers, Rav Dov Zinger, is also, um, I'm very blessed to have him as a neighbor. It's like a mentor in tefillah and chasidut and creativity with words, humor, relating to people. Um, and I think that this is going to sound maybe a little bit corny, but um, I really would like to mention my former and current bosses and colleagues as Torah examples for me. Um, Rabbanit Bina, Rabbanit Malka Bina, who as an adult was the person I really encountered in learning Gemara. Um, I studied with her my first year at Matan, and Rabbi Ariel Holland, who was both my colleague at Matan and also my Rav in yeah. Halacha, and had a tremendous influence on me, um, a combination of real misirut nefesh to the learning with taking responsibility in the world and taking small and steady steps that lead up to big things and big revolutions or big insights. And Rav Holland opened up for me a whole new look at learning in Halacha and Gemara, and I also love the way he inspired confidence in his students. So I try to do the same, really believe in them with the same thing as Rabbi Kaplan, incredible genius and knowledge, but um, being able to really discuss things um, with people who are not necessarily your peers, but really learn and develop new ideas in that way. And currently, I'm privileged to work under and alongside um, Dr. Michael Vigoda, who on the one hand is a tremendous Torah scholar, yet he carefully checks and rechecks every comma, every Tosvot. And um, he's a model both of how to analyze 
carefully and respect tradition, yet be unafraid to take your own stance. So, wow, so that's yeah, great. I have Quite a lot an array of, of people, and really unbelievable that some of them can even be neighbors. What? Yeah, <laughs> and your colleagues, and your teachers, and all at the same time. Yeah. Something you know, we call Talmida Yiskalti. I want I just want to mention two influences overall that are not living, and one is Sarah Schneer, who was a model of forging new programs and her love of Torah and students, and also I think philosophically, Rif Steinzeltz. Um, so many Gedolim we lost this year. And uh, he really had a tremendous influence on a generation of people. Yeah. Uh, I want us to pivot into women, specifically in Torah. You have had the privilege to teach women for quite a long time now. And you've seen different generations come and go. Generations today, I think, are a lot less than, than 20 years, as they seem to be in Tanakh. And so I'm curious what... What trends in women's Torah learning have you observed over the past years that you've been in the field teaching? Well, I think one thing that is so uh, welcome is a lot more confidence. Women are out there as role models, as Ramiot. Um, and at the same time, they have the confidence to combine who they are as women with their learning, combining family with their Torah knowledge or with their teaching and not feeling they have to directly emulate a male model of Torah, and also not feeling that they have to sacrifice either or. Um, you know, I mentioned the Hamalewovitz earlier, but she didn't have children in a family, and so maybe it was easier to dedicate herself wholeheartedly um, to Torah. I think that today there's more Torah Chaim um, and more uh, intimate Torah, more Pnimiut in Torah for men and women. I think that the learning, women's learning has affected men's learning in the way uh, they see learning. And um, I think that the fact that many women came to Torah as adults meant that they already had a secular education that they brought to their Torah learning. So there was an openness and a combination of the secular and the uh, the Limu Torah. And I think that overall has actually made Torah more palatable for secular people as well. It's opened it up to the world at large. Um, I also think, and this is something maybe paradoxical, that um, outwardly there's less identification or correlation between women who learn and feminism per se um, as a label. Um, yet, I think a lot of the influences of feminism have already simply been incorporated within the mindset of the women who are more traditionally minded. But there's certain things that are just obvious. As one member of the board, Lily Weil, used to say, she said, after 40, every woman is a feminist. I mean, it's just part of our mindset. <laughs> so, um, Meaning which everybody has a sense of self-definition and I can do all these things in the sense that the boundaries really are only self-prescribed. Yes. Yeah. Yes. The, the glass ceiling, I think it does not uh, exist in our heads anymore. Yeah. And that's the most important place for it to have been shattered. Yeah. Yordana, what changes and developments would you like to see happening in the world of Torah learning or women's Torah learning in particular? I think that there's two levels to that answer. I'd like in general to see the Torah world for men and women involve uh, more learning and more serious prayer especially in liberal circles, actually, and in all circles like a renewal of the world of tefillah. I think we've gotten there more in Torah learning. I think in tefillah we still need to work on things. I'd like to see very much the emergence of a new generation of leadership. Um, as I mentioned earlier this year, we've lost so many gedolim, um, and I think we have to see ourselves um, as building a new generation of leadership. And I would love to see a serious Torah think tank where Gedolim and Gedolot 
of all stripes could come together. Um, I personally experienced a tiny mini version of this with regard to Corona in a WhatsApp group. And I would love to see something big like that where people wouldn't be afraid to sit together. In women's learning and in women's Torah um, advancement, I'd like to see official roles for women that are accepted and not perceived as a threat. Perhaps women as dayaniot, uh, at least in private batedin in the beginning. I'd like to see the normalization of Torah study for all women, including Toshba at a certain level, because I feel that you can't really be Jewish without knowing Toshba at a certain level. And I'd also like to build expectations for girls. I think that we still lower our expectations, both of their religious observance and of their Torah learning. Um, we do it in subtle ways. We do it in more obvious ways. I think that we need to raise our expectations overall and then we'll have women who are more serious in the Torah world overall. I have four daughters and I am still hoping that my eight-year-old won't discover that not every child is expected to learn every single day because in our house we learn a parak yomi, we have halacha at every meal, and I'm waiting for the day when she comes home and says, Ima, this is not what people do. <laughs> well, I have to tell you, my daughter came home and, dis and discovered that not every girl hears the Megillah from women. Um, <laughs> and and um, I once spoke to Ravanit Esti Rosenberg and she said that not every girl um, gets a sitter on her bat mitzvah and a bracha from her Rav Rav Lichtenstein who says, now you're to daven three times a day. Right, and yes, she does yes. it. And, you know, <laughs> I discovered really to my horror um, how many girls today really don't don't daven, even the, those that are religious. And it, it's something that it, it comes out of a feeling of responsibility and of obligation. And um, I think that that's important for women to have in a very full way. I definitely agree with all of what you said. I, I really want to hear about your current work today. I think that many women who are trying to make a career in the world of Torah and all of that which relates to it, find themselves a lot of times in a lot of struggle um, with trying to piece that together in something that makes sense for them with their values, that makes sense also financially. And so I'd really love to hear about how that looks for you today. Of course, your career, as we said before, has a number of different parts to it. So speak to that piece. I'd love to hear that. I'll speak to that piece. I'm not sure I have a career in Torah, <laughs> but, um, you know, it, it, there is an Easter la sotota kardom lachvorbo to make it a uh, shovel to dig with. But I do have the privilege of working in a field in which I combine my Torah knowledge and learning with my legal career. And I also get to apply it to the real world, which I realize that most people um, aren't working in that kind of way. What I do is I'm a legal advisor in the Jewish law department at the Ministry of Justice. And the very fact that there is a Jewish law department at the Ministry of Justice is in itself a very innovative idea that began almost immediately after the beginning of the State of Israel. And although the legal system in Israel follows um, British common law to a great extent um, and has been pieced together piece by piece as um, innovative Israeli legislation as the time has gone on, all of the great legal thinkers in Israel saw Jewish law as having an important theoretical influence on the culture and on the values that should be embodied by law. And part of one of the foundational laws of Israel um, is that Israel is a Jewish and democratic state. And that's taken to um, be understood as Jewish law has a place in influencing 
um, the laws of the state of Israel. So in what way do we do that, right? It's not that we sit in the Knesset and we are the ones who make laws, but we're part of a legal team of advisors where our job in the Department of Jewish Law is to take a stance either on proposed legislation or um, with regard to the state's position in court from the perspective of Jewish law. Sometimes the Jewish law component is more theoretical or value-driven. Um, what's the value underlying what halakha says on a certain topic? And sometimes what we say um, from the perspective of Jewish law is the law. For instance, in the state of Israel, child support follow for Jews follows Jewish law. So the innovative decision a couple of years ago to make child support equally incumbent on both parents actually originated in the Jewish law department. And on the other hand, certain opinion papers that um, I've written involved um, the criminalization of um, prostitution, where I gave examples dating back from the Gemara of how very famous prostitutes were able to remake themselves and were accepted into society after they did tshuva, and also on the decriminalization of marijuana. You know, they, they, very interesting. And sometimes in something um, from the field of mamonot, like that you'd never think, but that we um, we were asked to write an opinion paper on whether having a loss leader um, in a store, meaning something you sell for a loss is okay, or is it misleading to the public? And we wrote about that from the perspective of Jewish law. Now, of, often, um, in order to make an impact, it has to be something on the one hand relevant to the discussion um, and palatable to Western ears. But on the other hand, if there's no chidush and we're just repeating what they've already heard, well, why say it? Why include Jewish law? So we're always like in the balance between putting over something that's new, um, and uh, is different than what Western law has to say on a specific topic. But on the other hand, being on the scale that's palatable and acceptable to Western ears. So it's not exactly the same as teaching halacha in a Beit Midrash. Um, on the other hand, we have to be very true to the halachic sources. We can pick and choose to a certain extent. And at times we are to the left of Bate Din and we'll take a stance that is more liberal maybe than the Beit Din. Uh, for instance, there was this very famous case of the get from Tzfat, where Rav Uriel Levi freed um, an aguna, and then the um, higher court, the higher rabbinic court, wanted to overturn that, and it came to Bagatz. And we took the stance in Bagatz that that shouldn't be touched and it could be defended on the basis of Jewish law, but more importantly, that once one frees an aguna, one shouldn't touch that. And we um, explain that from the field of Jewish law, and that had a very big impact on the decision that was ultimately adopted by the court. Um, what it does for me is it makes me examine the the sources of Jewish law, the sources of halacha, from a new lens. I have to actually apply these sugyot to the real world, um, all kinds of incredible sugyot. You're also um, applying very complex topics that even within Jewish legal realm are topics that don't have one clear answer or that they themselves are have a lot of tension surrounding them. And you're both taking very tense topics and trying to make them palatable to a non-religious audience. So that's an unbelievable niche that also has within it a certain level of shlichut. I mean, you're also trying to make it reflect well to the outside world, but you also are trying to be true to the already complex quagmire that we often find ourselves even within the religious world. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. We sometimes have topics that I'll sit and talk to, let's say, a classic community rabbi, and he's looking at me with his eyes glazed over. You guys are 
delving into that in depth, that's a really tough sugya. And indeed, it sometimes takes us a long time and a lot of research to come to different opinions. And, you know, somebody asked me recently, do you ever consult um, with rabbis outside your department? And we do. Yeah, that, uh, we, that was a question I was thinking also. Yeah, I was curious what no, kind we of do. rabbinic uh, We do. Uh, an array. I'm not going to mention names specifically, yeah. but an array of top-notch um, post-scheme. We have to. Sometimes mm -hmm. they're very, very important and sensitive topics. Um, and on the other hand, we, we do have to take a stance, and we have to write it in a way that's relevant to the law. You know, and on the other hand, sometimes we're to the left of the liberal uh, legal advisors. So, for instance, there was a discussion on whether one should implement new sanctions and be able to um, put out a um, an internet list of get refusers. And um, some people wanted to say that maybe that was going too far. And we, from the pin from the perspective of Jewish law, um, brought examples of other sanctions that were taken against get refusers in order to cause them a certain amount of embarrassment in order to force them to give a get um, without applying direct physical or monetary force. And yeah. so paradoxically, sometimes we're on the liberal end of things and sometimes we're on the more conservative end of things. So that's interesting too. That's a really fascinating piece. Speak to us about your fertility advising, another, another piece as well. I understand that while you were working in Matan, um, during those years, also you studied in Nishmat and became a Yoetzer Halakha. Uh, and I heard from a little birdie, i.e. you, when I heard you in a lecture a few days ago to, to us as well, you said that you always envisioned yourself eventually becoming a fertility advisor, a program that they only recently developed. So tell us about, about that piece. That's really the case. When I studied to be a Yoetzer Halakha, I already had in mind that I wanted to specialize in fertility and Halakha. I had already begun to lecture on the topic of fertility and halakha from a theoretical perspective when I was at Matan, and I wanted to specialize on those quest in those questions way before there was a special program for that, so that when I came into the special training program that then later Nishmat had, I was already at the level where I was dealing with serious questions in halakha, and I, I continue to do so, and I also combine what's going on from, from the Shetach, from what's going on in the real world. Um, I worked for two years in E-Team as the director of their assistance center. And I got a tremendous amount of experience working with couples that had done surrogacy abroad. And so I, I and now when I work in the legal department, of, uh, in the legal advisor's department in Jewish law, I also am able to take what I know from that field and apply it um, to my knowledge of what needs to be done in terms of legislation in Israel and combining that with Jewish law. You heard me in a lecture where I combined Jewish law with Israeli law, mm -hmm. and I think that that itself is a unique niche I, um, that I love. <laughs> yeah. And so some, just as in bullet points, some of the questions that you'll deal with on a regular basis in your capacity as a fertility advisor, you mentioned surrogacy. What are some of the other topics that come up in your work? Um, I often deal with the other side of the coin, which is egg donation, and we're asked by women which kind of egg donation to to use from a single or a married woman, from a Jewish or a non-Jewish woman. Um, we're asked, we were asked about women if they can be surrogates and if they can donate eggs, especially married women. Um, we're asked about the outcome, either of um, IVF or surrogacy or egg donation. Is the child considered Jewish? Is the child a Kohen or not a Kohen? Has the father performed a Puruvuan? Is it preferable um, to do this or that? 
Um, what some might call halakha infertility, where a woman believes that she's not getting to the mikvah in time to have relations and time them in order to become pregnant. Sometimes it's a question of resolving a halakhic issue where a woman thinks she can't um, go to the mikvah yet, and we help, help her find ways to resolve that. Sometimes, really, she can't get to the mikvah, and it's true halakha infertility, which is maybe, I don't know, less than 20% of the time we find out after also a, a, a um, physical and uh, medical workup. And in that case, we try to help her find different solutions, um, whether they're natural or whether they're doing an IVF or some other kind of, uh, some other kind of treatment. Um, and I just want to mention that also doing that work as a fertility advisor also has an impact on my ability to be a legal advisor in that field because I see so clearly what needs to be done in the legislative field on fertility. So th those two really do help each other in that area. And I also want to mention, um, to the credit of Medina Israel, the whole time during Corona, we haven't mentioned that word in this whole interview. Um, <laughs> trying but, to erase it from the mainframe. <laughs> but to the credit of the state of Israel, mikvaot remained open the entire time during Corona. And one of the things that I was able to do was be on the team and help advise as to how to do that safely. So, you know, that's the kind of thing where I felt, wow, I could really make an impact here in the in the department. Um, and you're um, saying very easily, Medinat Israel could have said they're being closed. This is a non-issue, but but with they they weren't going to say that so easily. But we stressed that they needed to remain open. And yet, on the other hand, we differentiated between that and men's mikvaot that were not an essential necessity. And of course, you know. Um, everybody heard about these things. It's not that the halacha was so complex, but bringing it to the forefront and describing it in terms that a um, non-religious person could accept was part of the challenge. And in fact, some of our legal opinions went around the world, and we tried to help mikvot stay open around the world, and they weren't. There were places oh. where mikvot were shut down for yes. periods of time. Wow. Amazing. It's really phenomenal work. In, in all of our conversations, I've asked our guests to share with us a text that inspires them, that speaks to them, that informs their 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 worldview. Uh, and I'd love for us to hear from you about the text that you brought for us today. So I chose a text from Likutei Mahoran um, of Rab Nachman. And I have to say one thing that pertains to my learning in general. Um, as I said that Rabbi Kaplan was a big influence on me, the first book he sent me was a book of his on the teachings of Rab Nachman. And I was blown away by it, but not in the good way. <laughs> I felt this was, wow, so off the charts because I had grown up in such a Lithuanian atmosphere in Chicago. And um, then slowly I came to love the study of Hasidut through him and through other avenues. But I still got the subtle message that in the very um, intellectual world where we learn Gemara, Hasidut was still kind of off the charts. And I only came out at age 40, to the fact that I really do study and teach Hasidut. And then I brought Hasidut teaching to Matan. And Likutei Mahoran is really one of my favorite texts. Um, and for me, it's very much a go-to when I want to teach some idea. I'll often start there, or I'll, I'll look there at least. And um, I got to this very, very short Torah of Rabbi Nachman in Torah. That's the way his, um, the chapters of his teachings are termed Torah, 203 Reish Gimel. And um, on the Torah in Hebrew goes as follows. Misipurei dvarim shel hanashim yecholim leida ma'amad hashchina ech hi ochezet ka'et. So from the things that are said by women, 
one can know the status of the Shekhinah, where she's holding now. Um, first of all, it's just a startling way to start a paragraph um, that somehow women's small talk has such great import that through it we're going to know where the Shekhinah is holding in the world. And then he brings the proof text. That he would go and walk outside the courtyard of the woman's, woman's house in order to know the um, peace or the, um, the well-being. well-being of Esther. So obviously the literal meaning of that pasuk is Mordechai was concerned with Esther's well-being. However, as you shall see in a moment, Reb Nachman takes um, Esther to mean something else. He says the following, Esther hi hashchina. Esther is the shechina. And so therefore, when we look at that pasuk, we now understand that Mordechai was walking outside the women's house in order to know the status of the Shekhinah, of the spiritual state of the Jewish people at the time, or the spiritual state of the world at the time. Ki Mordechai hayam Mordechai would apprehend this. And how did he apprehend the state of the Shekhinah? Leida shlom ha-Shekhinah He would know the well-being and the welfare of the Shekhinah from the women's courtyard. And how did he do this? Al By listening to what they were talking about, to what they were telling each other, their stories. Hmm. I think that this brings this piece brings so many things together that I love to speak about. I don't actually know where to start. But first of all, I think that um, the Gadol Hador, Mordechai, was not looking for the answers to the spiritual state or the biggest questions of generation by opening the Gemara and sitting with the sun had dream. He was walking outside in the world and he was listening. And he was listening to what people were saying because in that way, he would hear where the real state of spirituality was in the world. And he wasn't just listening stomp to people. He was going to what would be considered frivolous chatter or chatter that didn't have a very directed meaning, right? He was listening to the Sipurei Nashim, something very real, very tangible, something um, not filtered. And in that way, he would understand really where we were holding in the world. First of all, I hear this as a very important part of leadership, of listening, listening to people to know where the world is really at and not sort of lecturing at them. Um, maybe newspapers today are sometimes the gauge for that kind of thing. It's not always a pretty picture, but it allows us to formulate a true response to um, what's going on. I also think that there's a symbolism here that the Shekhinah is maybe found more amongst those who are the simple people. Um, people who are more complex and more formulated in their thinking, maybe the Shekhinah doesn't dwell there as directly. And Reb Nachman very much advised the um, path of simplicity especially for prayer, but also for learning. He said, you know, if you want to, if you open the Shulchan Aruch, just learn it straight. Learn a lot of halacha, learn a lot, and then think about what it means. I also think that um, 
these things can't always be gained directly. Sometimes you have to listen to what people are saying indirectly in order for them to speak the truth. He wasn't going up to somebody and interviewing them, <laughs> but he was he was just listening to what they had to say when he wasn't directly facing them. Well, we say sicha lefitumo, that sometimes when people speak to us or when they ask a halacha question, the thing that often gives us the most the, the clearest markers on how we're supposed to respond is before we ask them directed questions, meaning first hear how they formulate the question, hear the tone of voice, and then you can respond correctly. You, you mentioned Masiach Lefitumo. Masiach Lefitumo is actually a halachic phrase that sometimes replaces testimony because informal testimony can only be reliable if you know for sure that the person is saying it not because it's what you want to hear. Exactly. And it can even free agunot. It's mm -hmm. a kind of testimony that's accepted in order to free agunot. So there's a great import to this. And for me, this piece also um, speaks a lot about the combination between the levels of the pnimiyut and the, the internal aspects of uh, Torah, of Shekhinah, and the outer levels of how one's supposed to operate in the world on the halachic level. Um, you know, I think that combining those two is one of the big challenges of our generation as well. And I think Mordechai, who the Gemara says was the head of the Sanhedrin and had to make those halachic decisions, had to combine forces with the inner worlds of what was going on. And he was a leader in both senses. Um, and uh, Esther very much represents the Shekhinah, the inner aspect of how the world operated. And he had to listen to that. He also had to, I think, forfeit some of his power um, in order to listen to the weak and the vulnerable. I think that's also a very important part of this piece. And I also think it says that the Shekhinah um, is at different uh, states or levels at different times. Um, even within a time period, you know, now we were going through a very traumatic time period of Corona. But if you listen carefully, the kind of dialogue shifted at various aspects. There was anger, there was acceptance, um, there was belief, there was disbelief. And I think that even going through the crisis of Purim and the crisis of where the Jewish people were at at the time, there were different levels and states. And one has to listen to all of them and put them together. And so... Um, it's beautiful. I also, I really, I really love this piece because it basically says, if you want to know the spiritual state of the world, go in and hear how women are speaking to each other. Meaning go and listen into the different levels of conversation that women are having with each other because there is, they're, they're locked into a different, a different realm within this world as well. And so yeah, it's really, okay. it's putting the emphasis on on women's spiritual endeavors. It is, and I think it also is putting emphasis on one other thing, which is the level of intuition that we often disregard, both intuition of Mordechai as the listener and intuition of the speakers um, that doesn't come out of a text. Um, I remember that Chaim Soloveitchik wrote a very important article about the fact that recently there's a whole genre of halachic writings that tell you exactly what to do because we're no longer an oral tradition, but we're a written tradition, especially um, starting in the second half of the 20th century, uh, because we no longer see or hear what to do directly. And the whole concept of Torah Shabal Peh is also being able to see and hear directly um, and not just rely on a text. And I think that the ability to read people and to, to listen to a tradition um, is as important as the ability to read a text and analyze it carefully. And I think the leaders are those who are able to combine those, a really careful analysis of text and of all of the rules combined with um, a 
a love of tradition and following tradition just because it is, and also a listening, a deep listening to dialogue into what's going on um, on the intuitive level. So um, I also thought that was just a brilliant piece here. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that with us. Basimcha. Okay, we're going to move into a quick final little round of questions. I'm sure there probably are many, but what book or books are currently on your nightstand? Um, well, Megillah Esther is there because I'm reading, so I need to practice. Um, the Nitivot Shalom on Purim is on my nightstand. Um, Bioetika Kacholavan, uh, Israeli bioethics. And also Clarissa of Stefan Zweig is the like novel that I'm reading. So I usually have a novel and some other things going on. And of course, the Gemara, because I do Dapyomi, so the Gemara <laughs> is always there. <laughs> okay, so it's really a full representation of all the things that you're currently engaged in. If you could sit down to coffee with anyone uh, who's with us now who has passed, who would that be? My mom. She um, died this year, and I would give anything to be sitting with her and having coffee. I think as a figure of the past, I would love to sit and interview Sarah Schneer and hear how she did what she did. Um, Beautiful. What's your favorite tefillah, your favorite prayer? So it fluctuates. I have periods of time. Right now, it's modim in the Shmona Isrei. I've got a tremendous amount to be grateful for. Um, and I'm also starting to ease into the brachav ahavara before shma. Um, each time, for some reason, it, it like a, a certain part of davening follows me for a while, and I focus on it. What exotic location would you like to visit? Well, first of all, I'd go to Chicago to visit my father. It's not exactly an exotic location, but I think you mean where would I want to uh, visit that would be interesting. I've for a long time wanted to go to Prague and also to Northern England and Ireland and that area. Um, but to be quite honest, I don't have a strong urge to travel. I love traveling within books <laughs> and like seeing different cultures and people, but it could be almost anywhere. Yeah, beautiful. Which is a great way of saying also that you're happy with the windows you have right now into the rest of the world. Something people think about you that isn't true. Well... <laughs> This happens so often that it's almost comical. A lot of people think I'm very outgoing and that I love to speak in public. And um, in fact, I'm very introverted and I still get nervous every almost every time I teach. Um, because I love Torah and teaching so much, I just keep doing it. And I love people a lot, so I love being around them, but in smaller groups. So I think that's a big myth. <laughs> um, yeah, I think for many of us in the teaching world, that's a, that's a paradox that we live with. Uh, any hidden talents here, Dana? Um, I have a certain talent for spatial visualization um, that includes like eyeing space in a very precise way or driving in reverse. I've even done that for kilometers at a time. Word games. Um, what other hidden talents? I'm not sure. Baking. Are, I love are, to bake. Those are big ones. <laughs> <laughs> to close our conversation for today, uh, I would love to hear about something in your life that you're grateful for right now. These are hard times, and I think that many of us have gotten through them by focusing on the things that we're grateful for. So I'd love to hear that. Uh, I'm so grateful for so many things. As I said, I'm really focused on the tefillah of modim in, uh, in Shemona Yisrael. Um, my health and the health of my father uh, in Chicago and the incredible technology that we have that allows us to get through this time in a somewhat sane fashion. Um, I recently remarried, and I'm incredibly grateful for my husband and for my family, for my kids, 
and my daughter that's still at home, I have a younger daughter. And so right now working from home is a tremendous blessing, being able to spend more time around them, eating lunch together. <laughs> I'm incredibly grateful for my job that you heard before that I love and my great colleagues. And I'm really, really grateful for my community, um, especially here in Tekoa, but also at work. You know, I've been saying Kaddish for the past eight months. And I've discovered that even those who don't necessarily agree on a policy level in halacha with me saying Kaddish, they actually help out when, with, when needed as a great act of chesed. And so I'm incredibly grateful for the tremendous amounts of chesed I've experienced personally. Um, I think those are, that, that would be a good way to sum it up, just a tremendous amount of chesed in this period and feeling enveloped. You know, we spoke about Mordechai and the Shekhinah. I feel very, very much enveloped in that way. And I'm very grateful that I'm able to feel that way, even when during such a tough and challenging time. Wow. And I think that we're all a little bit grateful for this Zoom technology. I just have to say that this morning, I came from teaching Dafyomi to the Matan women, and we get to keep up that wonderful group of women, um, even during uh, Corona times. And I... Uh, I have to say, I'm really, really grateful for, for that technology and for that group of women. We, we've been together over 16 years. So I've just, I just have so much to be grateful for, Yosefa. Dana, I want to really express my gratitude to you for coming and having this conversation with us. I have no doubt that it will be meaningful and enriching uh, for so many who are going to listen. So thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Yosefa. It was really an incredible thing to have this opportunity to think about these questions. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One -on -One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Thank you to Sofia Vindish for producing this episode and the entire Matan team for their input. Please do One-on-One -on -one and Women's Torah Learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, and Matan's website, and write us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.